Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following content is not suitable for children. Part two, sexual desire in marriage. George, we got to argue about this a little bit more. Bring it on. Welcome to Foreplay Radio, Couples and Sex Therapy. I'm Lori Watson, your sex therapist. And I'm George Fallon, your couples therapist. And we are passionate about talking about sex and helping you develop a way to talk to each other. Our mission is to help our audience develop a healthier relationship to sex that integrates the mind, the heart, and the body. So we did this episode, remember the wedding cake, is it an anti-aphrodisiac in marriage? Because so many people have this experience and complain about it, especially men, that, hey, you know, if you get married, you can just kiss your sex life goodbye. (laughs) The truth hurts sometimes, Laurie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is that what all the guys in the firehouse said? Hey, listen, it's there's, there's some truth to it, right? But of course, it's more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. It is. But I think one of the things I heard you say that I do think is true is that men have fairly constant sexual desire. Like, constant, not in the means that they want it just all the time. Maybe some of them do, but steady. Once they feel sexual desire, it doesn't wax and wane the way a woman seems to. Testosterone helps with that, doesn't it? I really do think that. As I listened to the episode when I was editing, you know, my male patients who have low T, they act just like this. They have a fight with their wife and they don't want to do it. You know, they get busy at work and that's all they can think about. And they, they don't think about sex, but maybe once a week. And they struggle and they get anxious about their performance in a way that even men who have ED but have full testosterone, it's like, yeah, they're worried about it, but they're willing to take the risk. No, the flip side, if you're undergoing a sex change and you're taking testosterone, you can see how that really boosts that desire, that longing, that physicality that you know is often just equated with testosterone. Right, exactly. Trans patients who get T, they have that sense of constant desire again too, which is you know, which is different. And the other thing with trans is whether you, you know, however you feel about that, it's like they they suppress estrogen and progesterone. Mm-hmm. So they're suppressing the the part of the female hormone panel that creates some of our ups and downs because estrogen is a cycle and estrogen and progesterone are a cycle and it impacts mood and mm-hmm. mood impacts the way we feel about sex and women just don't have enough testosterone to be steady. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Women have a testosterone of 70 compared to men at a low T of 300. And most men, I mean, when they're young, it's like a thousand to... 600 easy. It's like, that's a, that's a lot of tea. I need oh. some of that stuff. <laughs> I want some of that stuff. I'm coming back. <laughs> and, and men, you don't have to apologize for having it. No, it's a beautiful yeah. thing. And what I think we need to celebrate is that 
the male drive is part of what keeps the sexual attachment cycle healthy, right? There's a driver and his vulnerability at initiating and keeping on that going, keeping Mm -hmm. on going is something that we need in order for the romance to stay sexual. So it's really, it's an important, beautiful thing. I I am in no way condemning it, but I also don't want to condemn women for the fact that their bodies say something else. You know, I've thought about this and I know I've told this story, but I knew um, a man who was a doctor and he was a high T guy and he unfortunately got prostate cancer. And so they put him on Lupron, Lupron, which is a drug that kind of binds with testosterone so that there's none that is available in the body. It's a terrible drug. And he said, I hate this. I hate this process. But I wish for one day I had felt what a body feels like without testosterone. Mm-hmm. You Because know, he just could not get rid of that. My wife is not responsive. It's about me. It's about us. It's like he didn't know what it felt like to not have testosterone that didn't drive her toward him. Yeah. Fortunately, he had a partner who was actually very responsive sexually in terms of mm-hmm. not in her body, but with her soul. She wanted to meet his needs and tried very, very hard. I'm always amazed. We're oversimplifying here, but for, say for a woman who doesn't have high testosterone, when you know you throw kids and work and COVID and all these stresses that they have sex as much as they they wind up having sex, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's so many women that have such amazing, healthy sex lives, and they they have so much to contribute to these conversations because they know how to be more in their body, they know how to be more in their heart, they know how to be more. They have to learn all these other ways, and when they do, they have such a, a fantastic range of their sexuality mm-hmm. that oftentimes men can't come anywhere close to matching. Yeah. I agree. I I mean, I really don't think testosterone has ever driven women. Even when she's young, she just doesn't have enough of it. So one of the things I think in marriage that is a new challenge is, okay, so maybe some of the context of dating has worn off and now we're married. How do I find my eroticism as a woman? Mm -hmm. And that is something that I think needs to be developed. You know, there's like a way that you can get in touch with a part of you that is sexual. Mm -hmm. And certainly the culture doesn't do you any favors as a woman for how to do that. You know, it's look sexy, don't be sexual. And, And the other thing, this is in the research that I brought to your attention, is that when people are dating, male sexual desire stabilizes women emotionally which again, we we talked about last time, is confusing when their sexual desire doesn't stabilize her emotionally in marriage and now she needs emotional responsiveness. But the other part of it was that female sexual desire directed at a male partner dating destabilizes him emotionally and sexually. So one of the things I've been wondering about, and I know it doesn't make sense to you that that would happen, but that's what the research says, that men back away from women who express open sexual desire. And so what if men select out for the more responsive sexual partner? You know, it's like they discard the one who's pretty sexual and they find the one who's, who is more responsive to him. Maybe he feels like he's making it happen. There's some sort of magic there versus she's owning it. Or 
the woman who is sexually open says, oh, that didn't work. You know, that, that hurt me by being so vulnerable and open about my desire. So she changes on the inside as well and says it's better to be receptive. I mean, how many times as a woman, I don't know if you hear this as a man, but as a woman, I hear this all the time. I don't want to give him the upper hand. I don't want him to know how much I want him. I don't want him to know how much I love him or like him because that would give away my power. I'm like, oof, you know, maybe there's a really toxic thing here that happens that helps reinforce for women that it's safer, it's better to have receptive desire because that keeps men wanting her. What do you think about that, G? I have no idea what to say. Oh, it come seems, on. I, it come seems, argue with me. It seems a bit confusing You, you are withdrawing from me. Argue with me. I mean, for... I don't get. I don't hear a lot of those complaints from men that a, a woman is more fully in their sexuality, and that's something that they're going to want to turn them off or shut them down, or to try to find somebody who's not that way. So yeah, because the theory goes, and this is what the research said, is that she would be promiscuous, mm-hmm. and therefore he couldn't hold on to her, or also that her full sexual desire is unfeminine because it's so against the stereotype of. You know, the passive, subordinate, sexual mm-hmm. woman. I, I think that could be something to being intimidated or insecure if somebody's better at it than you are. Mm-hmm. Right? You'd want to be the lead. You'd want to be the strong one. That's what men are taught to be, right? right. So if you have a, a woman who's too sexual and you're feeling like not up to speed, then that's going to... So that promiscuous kind of label could be something that men would be cautious about. Like they might want to have fun with it, but to get serious would be something that would, would might be intimidating. You know, I was on a radio show and the disc jockey said, you know, Lori, if you ever had to be single again and date again, you'd be in real trouble. I'm like, well, why is that? And they're like, hmm, you'd be so intimidating as a sex therapist. Like who would, who would ever want to have sex with you? I'm like, shh. That's really not a good feeling. Like, but he was describing this, right? Mm-hmm. That that the male wanted to feel more competent and more confident, and somehow or another, a woman who was, you know, sexual was going to dysregulate him. Right, and again, that's putting men in the insecure category. I would like to think there are a lot of men out there that would actually want to date someone like you and would see that as <laughs> You're a reassuring. Fun- Thank you. Uh-huh. But again, it's the lens and how we want to see this. I try to come from the lens of the research that talks about the best sex and the, what it looks like and, you know, from this more secure platform, right? So, right. It did not, however, okay, I will, I'm going to argue one last thing. I thought the research was about insecurely attached men, and it wasn't. It was about all attachment styles in men. So mm-hmm. that was a little discouraging to me. And we don't have to believe all research is gospel here. So you don't have to believe that. Okay. Let's come back with some of the feedback that our listeners gave to us because it stirred up quite a, quite a bit. And feel free to throw that wedding cake (laughs) at your partner. Okay. May 20th is our couple's retreat. So great sex, great love. You can find it on our website on foreplayradiosextherapy.com. And we just invite you as a couple to come and join us on May 20th. It's Friday. It's all day. We talk 
all about sex. We talk about everything. And we do it in a way that's safe and not embarrassing. But if you come, you will have conversations you've never had before. Yes. So May 20th, again, great sex, great love. Please join us. Come on. Speaking with certified sex therapist Lori Watson from Awakening Center for Couples and Intimacy. Lori, what is an intensive? So an intensive is 12 to 14 hours of therapy all in one weekend. And it's a way to really make fast progress on an issue that you've been stuck in. Maybe it's a sexual issue or a relationship issue. People will fly in maybe on a Friday and we'll do three hours usually, get them acclimated, kind of set a direction. And then on Saturday, we usually do four or five hours and Sunday morning, four or five hours as well. Compared to weekly therapy, I mean, there's just so much more you can get done when you have a chunk of time. How do people know if an intensive will help them? I do an initial hour interview to make sure that the candidate is suited for that kind of deep, long work. And also to make sure that I'm the right person. And for the record, if you don't choose to come in and see me, then you don't have to pay for that hour. Overcome the challenges in your relationship and your sex life. Learn more about intensives and Awakening Center's other services at awakenloveandsex.com. So one of the things I, I also thought about is, yes, men have more sexual desire and constancy in that. But... A lot of the men that I knew when I was getting married and a lot of the men I see get married, it's a little bit of check the box. I got married. I have a sexual partner. Now I can go and fulfill my purpose in life. And I can put all my energy into work because I've already accomplished finding a partner. Mm -hmm. So they're not as necessarily putting energy into being attuned being emotionally responsive. So suddenly now for her, she got the sexual desire, but she, now she needs to prove something else to herself that he'll, he'll know me. And, you know, his attention has turned to work. Do you think? That's what I'm thinking. You know me, Lori. I like to keep it as simple as possible. Okay, what's that? Simple to me is whichever gender is more in that sexual withdrawing position, which is more receptive, right? It's harder for them to access their desire, right? There are more things blocking it. Most of the time, men overcome that with testosterone, right? So they get yes. put in that sexual pursuer position. But I work mm. with plenty of men who are sexual withdrawers, and they look very too. similar, right? They look like, you know, passive. It's harder for them to kind of initiate, to access, and we're not trying to assign this to agenda. We're just trying to say, hey, sexual withdrawers out there, you have good reasons you're in that role. Let's just figure it out. I love when you say they have to be more intentional to develop who they are sexually. Because if they're willing to do that work, they're going to be fine. But so many sexual withdrawers are just not willing to do the work. It's safer to disengage. It's safer to not feel the, the shame or the you know, you're disappointing your partner, yourself. There's so many feelings they want to avoid. They just don't engage in the process. So, I mean, I I'm sure people, some of the feedback we might have gotten that kind of oversimplified that like women, when they get married, to me, that's just more of a sexual withdrawal. Just what happens when you get distracted and you're raising kids and you're going a million miles an hour, you start to feel pressure on you. And then it just builds this momentum that makes sex you know, a harder thing to want to do for yourself and something that becomes more receptive to your partner. And then that just makes it harder and harder. 
Yeah, and I think sex is so intimate. And even though many of us talk about wanting to be close sexually and emotionally, right when we get it, you know, we have fears that get aroused in ourselves of this intimacy is hard for me. You know, I feel more vulnerable in this intimate place sexually. I think we have similar fears when our partner gets responsive emotionally. I mean, how many times have we sat with couples and one person who has always been the withdrawer suddenly comes forward and gives to their partner kind of a responsive message and the partner blows up, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like they just got what they wanted. Why are they not accepting that and enjoying that? And it's the same thing sexually. Sex requires rigorous intimacy. And I don't know that we're so prepared for that, you know, when we get married. No, and I think we should be more prepared for what's coming. For couples Mm -hmm. that in premarital, whatever they're doing, to have some of these conversations that says, how do you think things might change and how will we start addressing those things? Yeah. To prepare couples for what's likely to happen instead of everyone reinventing it and figuring it out on their own. Yeah, I agree. One, one listener has talked about, you know, is it normative and healthy? But, you know, basically I had implied that there's an implicit baseline that a woman in the later years of the marriage should have desire, you know, and... She kind of asked about that. And, you know, I think that honestly, yeah, I understand that menopause decreases physiological desire, but the differential compared to an 18 year old woman and a 60 year old woman is not so great that she had scads and scads of physiological desire when she was 18. She Mm -hmm. had a different sense when she was 18. She told herself different things, she felt differently. Yes, there's physiological changes that are difficult, but desire to me is a shared quantity between two people. They co-create that. Mm-hmm. So is it normal for her to have a waning of physiological desire? Yes. Is it happy that if she pulls back and becomes a sexual withdrawer at menopause, is that going to be happy? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I know, you know, men my age talk about it and they're, pretty enraged when their wives shut down sexually and it's like okay that's that's it that's the ball game i'm menopausal it's like okay wow you know tough i don't think so yeah i think it's many men will use the term like they feel gaslit in these moments that it's like they're not having sex so they're trying to protest right they're trying to bring attention to the problem so the couple can deal with it and get closer together so and then they get blamed for being critical, mm-hmm. right? So that they, the problem becomes now theirs. Why were they not having sex? It's like one thing you don't want to have sex. Then you're going to blame me for we're not having sex. It's you not like blame crazy. Me for my land. protest, right? So and then yeah. that, that's the setup. That's pretty nasty. And then it just dumps the load of pressure and guilt on the partner. And I mean, for Trust sexual, me, that ain't a male thing. Not a sexual pursuer thing. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's it's such a broader way of talking about it when we just talk about sexual withdrawals and pursuers and don't, you know, mm-hmm. there can be some generalization with gender, but there you know, is. Yeah. all of us do some of both. You know, you could be a sexual pursuer and you go through phases where you're going to withdraw. And, mm-hmm. and, and this is more about just trying to name what's happening. You know, for sexual withdrawers, we're, we're trying to champion them to fight for their own sexuality because mm-hmm. when they do, they're going to be fine. But when they start to resign themselves that they don't need it and that it's okay and they start letting it go, I mean, it's, it's tragic. 
And the reality is the relationship needs it. Yeah. I mean, romance needs sexual attachment. So, you know, the person who says, well, I don't need sex. But how do they think that when they know their partner needs sex and they promised fidelity? It's like, I don't need sex. My partner's dying over there with his or her need for it. I mean, and this is the only way that's legitimate to meet it within a monogamous you know, agreement. I, I just, I don't get that. I, I don't get how people give that up. And I understand the, the fury of the sexual pursuer, obviously, sexual pursuer here. Well, and if you have had a lot of bad experiences and messages at your fault and guilt and pressure and stress, you know, sex isn't such a great thing. You can't have an orgasm. I mean, there are a lot of people who have good reasons they don't want to have sex, right? right? And then what's so sad is that that wins out, right? Yeah. The negative encounters train the brain that this isn't such a great thing and your life is okay without it. And then people start to, I guess my question to you, Laurie, would be, since you're a researcher, like, does this happen in other mammals? I mean, do lions lose sexual interest? Do they like fall into these same type of patterns? Does it like, is it, have you ever seen any research like that? No, I mean, most mammals follow the female mammals cycle. Mm -hmm. So they're having sex when she's in heat. You know, she sends off pheromones. And I mean, some mammals do have sex beyond that. I think chimpanzees and they are more sexual in other times. So, you know, I, I think it's more governed physiologically. Mm -hmm. I think as humans, we have spirits and we have an emotional capacity that is pretty evolved. And so for us, sex is also a connector. You know, it's, it's not just about release. I mean, you can have sex every single day and have a release. You can masturbate every single day and have a release, but not feel that deep sense of, you know, but I long for my partner. I mean, most sexual pursuers don't just want to have an orgasm. Mm -hmm. You know, they're longing for some an experience with their partner. Don't you think? I do. And I, I think this is, kind of one of the things that infuriates me. It's like in most marital vows, and I'm talking marriage now, there's a promise. I promise to be faithful unto you. And that, that cannot mean I promise not to have sex with anybody else. That has to mean I promise to be sexual with you. I mean, it has, it's a promise onto an erotic life. It's not just a, I'll keep away. And and, you know, most people don't promise. And I promise to be emotionally responsive to you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's implicit. But, and they do often promise caretaking. You know, I promise I'll take care of you in sickness and health. But really, we all kind of understand from ancient times that the promise of sexuality is very, very important. Right. And it's hard to fulfill that promise when your other emotional needs are not being met. Yes. Right? So how do the big thing in this podcast is try to get couples to have that conversation. What is that sexual withdrawal need to be more engaged, to feel safer, to feel more connected, to give their body the best chance of kind of coming back and enjoying this natural process that, you know, unfortunately a lot of sexual pursuers are so frustrated with this process and become so critical that they're not so emotionally safe and, and doing things that create that climate that would work. So this is a co-created 
process a negative cycle. I've never met one where both people aren't playing their parts, right? And no, I agree. I agree. I, I'm just taking your part this time. Last time you took this part, and now you're taking my part. We're, All criss- right, good. we're crisscrossing. <laughs> it shows flexibility. <laughs> or argumentativeness or something. Well, it, we're trying to respond to listeners who felt a sense of what feeling discouraged by you know the conversation that this so often happens with couples and i think there's something that we need to face discouragement too many couples out there are settling for a low engagement sexual life Mm -hmm. filled with negative cycles that they could do some things that could change that the other thing we talked about i don't mean to interrupt you but i don't want to let this go before we run out of time is Remember, we kind of explored the sense that women need to feel desired in order to Mm -hmm. turn on. And somehow or another, she seems to end up feeling taken advantage of. I I talked with one person about this and she said, you know, when we were dating, it was, there was always context. I was expecting sexuality. There was, you know, we were on best behavior. We were doing new things together. There was always this kind of nice, romantic, experience when I was with my partner and then we get married and it's routine you know they're going to work I'm going to work you know taking care of kids or whatever is happening it it all falls into routine and there aren't these opportunities where she especially as a female feels that you know sense of being desired I I don't it's so complicated George I'm all over the map today well listen I think we should come back and do another episode on exactly what you're talking about. Cause mm-hmm. that, that sense of being taken advantage of really puts up the blocks and we really mm-hmm. want to get into that world and understand what that, what that's like. Mm-hmm. But okay. I just want to end this by saying thank you again, listeners for the feedback, mm-hmm. right? That there's, this is complex and it, sometimes we might oversimplify it or you might just get a perspective that doesn't fit and that's cool. It shouldn't fit because there's a lot more going on here. And when you give us feedback that tries to stretch that and challenge, say this is probably also going on, you're right. I mean, this is, there's a lot going on here. And the more that we can talk about it, get specific, you know, make room for those nuances, the better the communication is going to be. So we're all for it. Okay. Thanks for listening. Keep it hot, y'all. Hey, don't forget to check out uberlube.com with the coupon foreplay. It really helps us to support the podcast and keep delivering free content. Thanks so much. Lori, really excited about the Success and Votability Project. We are really pushing the leading edges of therapy and breaking down the process and in moments, session by session, choice points. Why does this work? What intervention are you using? If it works, what do you do next? I mean, this is the next level for therapists. If you want to up your game, you want to see real clinical examples, you want to break down the process, you want demonstrations, you want teaching. I mean, it's all there. Really exciting, good stuff. It is. I love it. I listen to the new modules repeatedly. It's great information. I'm learning, you know, still in the process and it is good. I love what you guys do teaching and the demonstrations. They're fun. They're funny and they're really helpful to my work. So this is training for therapists. If you'd like this training, go to successinvulnerability.com. It's all one word, successinvulnerability.com. Call in your questions to the foreplay question voicemail. Dial 833-MY-4PLAY. That's 833-MY, the number four, play. And we'll use the questions for our mailbag episodes.
All content is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered as a substitute for therapy by a licensed clinician or as medical advice from a doctor. This podcast is copyrighted by Foreplay Media.